May 15th, 2011, First Church and Parish in Dedham, Beauty, Truth, and Good, by the Reverend Raleigh Weaver. What better month to consider the beauty, truth, and good of this earth than the month of May? In the sunny days of May, it does not matter what your situation, all you are required to do to find ecstasy in life is to step outside your door and look at the blue ethereal sky and take in the wonder of the emerging flowers and leaves and breathe in the air and life looks a bit brighter. It's easy to imagine why Francis Hodgkin Burnett set his tail in a garden. Where else but in nature would our hearts and souls begin again? In countless poems, Emily Dickinson said as much. She went so far as to chastise loquacious preachers for excessive rambling and to tout the spiritual benefits of the garden. She measured life's disappointments against the bees and the flowers on her path and found them insignificant. Interestingly, during her lifetime, Dickinson was known more for her gardening than her poetry. As early as the age of nine, she was known for scientifically classifying and pressing into a book the flowers that she found in her family's gardens. I don't know about you, but when I was nine, I still imagine gnomes lived in tree roots and fairies under every leaf. I established complicated systems of communication with my plants. Once I set up a complicated magical system to reinvigorate a dying house plant that even included a radio playing to keep it company and a good view and comfortable bedding. Unlike Emily Dickinson, at nine, my classification of plants and ideas of what would make them grow fell more closely in line with magical rather than scientific thinking. In his book, Emily Dickinson and the Art of Belief, Roger Ludlin points out that the discord between the scientific truth and the immediacy of belief was common in the modern era. In our time, we see the going from magical thinking to factual thinking as a common characteristic of maturing and growing up. This magical thinking, including the mystery that surrounded ancient religious worship, and the immediacy of belief that came from living in closer connection to the earth were what was lost when we moved into modernity. And they were also lost in our transition from a religious-based universalism and Unitarian congregations to the more humanistic Unitarian universalism we celebrate today. And that is why I thought it might be good to explore this idea of beauty, truth, and good on this 50th anniversary. A structured liturgy is essentially what was lost in the transition between a more Christian-centric congregation to a more humanistic one. The doxology would have been part of that. If you are not familiar with it, the doxology is a praise hymn to God, often sang as part of the worship service. In Unitarian Universalist churches, it was usually sung as we did today after the acceptance of the offering. In a Jewish congregation, it is sung after the Kaddish is said. In Catholic and Episcopalian services, it is sung after the hymns and that are set to biblical texts. It's easy to see 
how offering ritualistic and uplifting praise after a prayer or an offering or a biblical passage was sung might lend it, well, more magic. I suppose, depending on how you look at it, this could be a good or a bad thing. If you are looking at the world through truth, a truth that cannot find any proof in God or that God is listening to you, you must wonder who you are praising when you sing a doxology. Perhaps that is why our non-Trinitarian ancestors wrote, Rejoice in love we know and share, in love and beauty everywhere. Rejoice in truth that makes us free, and in the good that yet shall be. Unlike the common Trinitarian doxology that was written in 1674, the beauty, truth, and love lyric is rejoicing without praising anyone. When I hear these two doxologies side by side, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And rejoice in love we know and share. In love and beauty everywhere. Rejoice in truth that makes us free. And in the good that yet shall be. I can't help but wondering if the measurements for good and truth and beauty are any more accurate than those for the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Certainly beauty is subjective. You simply have to contrast Robert Maplethorpe, Jackson Pollock, and Pablo Picasso, or rap and classical and jazz music. And you can see that what one person thinks is beautiful, another might find objectionable. Emily Dickinson, who led an otherwise quiet life, found beauty in the hillsides and the forests, and in the books and dear friends. It is essential for every human soul to find beauty in life. We each need to touch it and hear it and wrap ourselves in it. This is what Emily Dickinson did with her poems. She constructed windows where the beauty she felt contrasted with the difficult truths in life, truths of loss and of dying, of sadness and isolation. And this is what beauty in every form does. It sustains us. It lifts our hearts when we feel lost. But what of truth? In the last poem I read, Dickinson suggests that truth and beauty are the same, even to the point of becoming covered in moss, so there's no difference in their names. Are truth and beauty always the same thing? Can there be beauty in an untruth? What of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny? What about the triune God or the virgin birth? Do all stories have to be true to be beautiful? We have all confronted beautiful truths in an untrue story and ugly stories full of truth. Have you ever been handed a bouquet of dandelions from a loving child and admired their beauty while holding in your heart the truth that dandelions are considered weeds the world round? Or admired the grace with which a bee floats? and flits from flower to flower, knowing full well 
If you get in its path, you will feel the bitter shock of its sting. I would argue that most truths are like these, situational. They change in relationship to context and situation. And what of good? How do we determine good? Do we measure it against a God watching us and telling us right from wrong? Or do we each determine it for ourselves? This gets me back to my plant. The one my nine-year-old self tried to bring back to life with a radio, a good view, and a blanket. As you might imagine, my attempt failed. I learned quickly that plants need water and sunshine and air more than they need entertainment and beauty and warmth. And so my little rope plant died. Some might say my ignorance killed my plant or my magical thinking killed my plant. All I know is once I figured out how my actions had hastened the demise of my plant, I felt deep remorse and sadness. I was, in a sense, disenchanted. The gifts of that difficult experience were an understanding of plant care, and at the next opportunity when my grandmother sent me $5 for my birthday, I bought myself a new plant, an asparagus fern, Now I knew what plants needed, and I watered and nourished my fern, and it grew. I learned to repot it, and still it grew. Years later, I put my fern on the porch of my apartment in Maine in order to give her more sunshine and fresh air, and in less than 24 hours, she disappeared. I was devastated. I hadn't even considered that someone might steal my dear plant. A few days later, when I was around back of the apartment taking out the trash, I found my fern on the ground beneath our floor, fourth floor porch. Nobody had stolen my plant. It had simply rolled away. When I picked up the fern and gathered her in my arms, I had my first awareness of how attached to her I was. My fern had returned. I had bought it when I was in fourth grade and kept it with me all that time, and in fact, that fern with me went with me to nearly every place I have ever lived. And it still lives with me today. I know it sounds sort of silly, but I feel very connected to that this the plant. And having it in my dwelling place makes it home. In truth, I know it is just a common plant. In fact, asparagus ferns like dandelions are considered weeds in many parts of the world. They are poisonous to house cats, and they wilt seasonally and are a mess. My truth is that this asparagus fern is my friend. It serves as my witness, even though, in truth, it cannot see. It's a spindly, gangly plant that isn't exactly beautiful, but its presence in my life is undeniably good. And quite simply, that is the point I'm trying to make today. Beauty, truth, and good may be as relative as God is. And yet somewhere between the cold, hard truth of the weeds and the beautiful untruth of the garden gnomes comes the undeniable magic that if we allow them, beauty, truth, and good combined will open the gate to the ecstasy of life that our radical realism would have us ignore. This is what Emily Dickinson taught us. When you go into the garden, you have a choice. 
when you are weeding. You can allow your soul to focus on the truth of the weeds and the bugs, or lift it up by the good and the beauty and the truth of the flowers and the butterflies. Which do you choose?